Welcome to the Kill the Lion podcast. It's me, Cody Clark. We have a wonderful show for you today. Joel Dick is here, actor and cinematographer, often working with Dan Lotz, another podcast guest. We're going to have a great conversation. He's a very talented guy. If you like the show, by the way, support us. $2 per month. KillTheLionFilms.com You're supporting the show and you're supporting the studio as well. We make movies. We want to make more of them. You help us do that. And now, Joel Dick. All right, Joel. Good to have you on. Good to be on. Uh, I've been seeing a lot of uh, podcasts from uh, from other people, other filmmakers. So I'm excited to, to talk to you today, man. Yeah, you're somebody I'm really excited to talk to. Um, I'm I'm somebody who cares a lot about cinematography, yeah, cinematography as well. See, I botched that right out of the gate. Can't even say the damn word. Can you can you do me a favor? Can you say the word properly for uh, the listeners? Since I uh, I'm apparently bad at it. Yes, you said something about how you do focus on cinematography as well. Yeah, see, that's how it's supposed to be said. Cinematography. Cinematography. Yes. All right. And and I love cinematography. I handle the cinematography on my films. But Dan, on a couple of his films, he uses a guy by the name of Joel Dick. And uh, you do great cinematography work. You're also a, a wonderful actor as well. And we're going to talk about both today. But let's start, let's start with cinematography. Are you kind of a lens nerd? Are you like, how deep do you go? Because you create some very beautiful images. But how do you go about creating them? Are you are you a stickler for technical aspects? What's your what's your poison, sir? I think I'm pretty much an outlier when it comes to cinematographers. If anyone knows Chlorine and the fact that it was me and Dan sort of going out and just doing everything and sort of improv, I would say my comfortability level is completely in improv- improvisational. And now I'm uh, now I'm screwing up my words here. Improvisational uh, cinematography, which is basically. Other than getting like locations, I'm not even really too comfortable with leaving like a shot list or storyboards. And in terms of like, am I a lens nerd? Really, I just have the lenses that I like to use, and I just go out and and, and see what see what works, see what looks good. You know, a lot of the time it'll just be, especially with the chlorine, we would just go out and it would just be okay. Well, here's the setup. Then would sort of explain to me the setup. Now your your character's over here, my character's over here, and then we're going here and you know, we'd be at a we'd be at a location that we had already scouted beforehand, uh, and then it was just all right. Well, we need a wide shot. What's let's just let's just go for it. And I'd throw on my thirty five, and it, we would go from there. In terms of like well read cinematographers, like I, I I even got a question the other day, like, hey, what's your what's your favorite cinematographer? And and I just had to be honest, like I it's not like I'm not over here sort of like researching. Uh, you know, lenses and different cinematographers and different cinematography styles. I just know what I like to look at. And then I, I, every time I go to the location and, and see what looks good to me. And then I try to do my best to, to cover it the, the best I can. Yeah, well, you trust your eye, which is always very important. And uh, I'm, I'm kind of uh, in the same boat as far as improvisational cinematography. I like I like how you term that because I've I've had a hard time explaining that to people that you know ask me cinematography questions about my movies or whatever you know it's it's kind of a letdown for them when you explain that it's an instinctual thing as opposed to something that's a calculation that you can provide them that will give them the look of one of my movies one of your movies whatever it's just you 
our styles kind of come from just trusting our eye and seeing what the lens is giving us in a given location and where we can place it to get a nice effect. It's it's a it's a taste thing above all else for sure. So with Chlorine and with The Long Con, these are two movies that I would say, you know, kind of a similar genre, you know, a little bit different tone to the films, but overall a kind of um, crime and and murder headspace, a little bit more of genre films, though, of course, in Dan's unique style. Is there like, is there a type of film that you are itching to do cinematography for that's like different than that? Is that a place where, you know, you you feel like you've kind of nailed that kind of look for that kind of movie and you just want to do a lot of those movies? Uh, what, where, where do you see yourself as a cinematographer as far as like the next, let's say, five, ten Joel Dick cinematography movies? That's a good question. Obviously, you know, what sort of binds all of our work together is sort of this very seedy, crime-ridden, but like underneath the surface, you know, of the like the suburbs, because Dan and I are both, you know, suburbanite, um, you know, from suburbanite families, and 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 so I, I, I honestly, I don't even think of genres too much in terms of cinematography. I do. I'll just say one thing. I don't think that I'm, I will ever be burned out of the crime genre. I just feel like there's there's so much there. Um, when when Dan and I started, we were we were just some kids with some airsoft guns, you know, running around Dan's parents' place and and just pretending to shoot each other and and you know, coming back from a speech in a bay where we would do this like weird these speeches and we almost like theater esque type. Um, stuff and then we'd come back and like just play around and pretend that we were shooting each other and killing each other and I don't know how that like <laughs> morphed into this uh, interest for the crime the crime genre but if you even told me if you even asked me like what, what's the difference from how do you shoot uh, a crime drama and that sort of so like gritty sort of everything's plain to see there's nothing that's really away from view and that's that's because you you want everything to be seen. You want this the grittiness to come through. You want the the manipulation to come through. You want the sort of the seedy nature of what's going on behind the scenes to come through. But if someone asked me how, how do you how do you shoot that comparatively to like a rom com, like how would you shoot it differently? I wouldn't even know how to, I wouldn't even know how to how to respond because it's you know like I said we said before my process is so impro- improvisational. Um, but in terms of where I see myself genre wise, I, I don't really. I don't really focus too much on that. I mean, I, I definitely would like to, you know, I think Dan and I need to do a comedy soon. Like not a black, because we, we're very comfortable with the, with the dark comedy and the crime comedy. But I feel like something that if we just tried to focus on a straight comedy, I, I think that would be hilarious. Yeah, I could see that definitely as well. You definitely have uh, comedic chops that come through. There are little moments of humor to your character uh, in in your collaborations with Dan, there's a great piece of physical comedy in the Long Con that you're a part of. You do one of the best falls I've ever seen in a film. <laughs> Can you tell me about that fall? I don't want to give too much away to people that haven't seen the film yet, but you do fall down, and it does look pretty perfect. Uh, what went into that fall? I'll say uh, just what I was talking about before with where we sort of started out in speech and debate. And then we would, we would, so we would do these speeches and you'd sort of like act out like sort of theater style by yourself, this book. 
And then, you know, we, when Dan and I met each other and then we knew we wanted to do film stuff and it was really fun. Falling was every time we, we would get together and shoot our, like our gang of guys and just get the camera and get our airsoft guns out there. I was, I was taking a fall every single shoot. Like that was like a, <laughs> so there were some projects where I was, I would fall twice because one of my characters would, would die. And then, and then another of my characters would, I would just put like a, you know, a, something like a headset on or not a headset. What am I saying? Like a, a mask on and then I'd be a different bad guy and then I'd fall down. So <laughs> it was just one of those things that I just did it so much that um, I got comfortable with it. Also, you know, I don't think this is that much of a spoiler. You know, obviously you don't see the way we framed the shot. It's sort of like a, a, a mid shot and it's sort of higher. Um, you don't really see below me, but there's this big, you know, um, blow up bed behind me. So I'm like, I'm just falling back. And I, and I know I had done some some test falls where I sort of just fell down in preparation and it was, it was really comfortable. It wasn't, it wasn't, it didn't hurt at all. So it was just something where I had complete confidence that I wasn't going to hurt myself. And we just rehearsed it a couple of times. And I, I don't know, even if, even if there wasn't as comfortable of a thing to fall back on, I think I'd be fine. Um, Dan had actually had a similar fall uh, in one of our short films, pull the trigger that we, we sort of look back at and, and uh, discuss uh, to this day, actually, and and it's it, there's no padding or anything. It's just complete concrete, and so you know you just you fall enough. I'm sure that's the same way for like professional stuntmen. You fall enough, and you just sort of you sort of you're just okay with it at that point. Yeah, it's a weird thing to fall, even if you have the you know the the blow up bed or a bunch of pillows behind you. I know we had a fall in uh, Ramekin, uh, one of my movies where. You know, we had just we we found every pillow in the apartment. We, we so it was just like a mountain of pillows on the floor, just out of out of screen. And uh, even when you're doing it, because when I was gonna have her do it, I was like, well, I gotta do it as well to like make sure like it's possible. Like I'm gonna be the the test dummy for this. And even when you're falling on that, it's a little hard to get out of like the psychology of like I'm falling, I'm gonna get hurt. And like really trust and really like wear it on your face that like you have no concern whatsoever for the fact that you're about to fall. It's it's hard to get into the headspace because it's just like it's so unnatural to just let your body fall. And I think you you accomplished that well with your face of just like you just look like somebody who falling is like the last thing on your mind in that moment and you are just falling and you have no control over it. It's just it's. It's a hard thing to trust the uh, the padding behind you, and you you did that very well. Yeah, maybe uh, there's just something mentally that I just <laughs> I don't know. I was able to get past or something. Uh, I don't know. So you're you're obviously you're a performer in these films as well. You're you're kind of a, a double threat actor, cinematographer. You you play these roles that like I feel like some of these roles might normally go to somebody who's more obviously intimidating you know in these in these genre films usually you know we want we want a guy that just straight up looks like he's been to prison or he's he's been through a lot in life and you guys kind of you guys kind of uh, cast against that and it's it's a very ballsy cool thing to do because you know a lot of people starting out making films they've just got their friends to make films with and they can feel a little bit of ashamed of like trying something a little different and like casting your friend as some sort of intimidating character but you guys own it in this really strong way and i feel like your performance you there's a lot of confidence there that 
that meets the audience halfway to believe this character for these 90 minutes or so. Talk to me about like, you know, Dan comes to you and he's like, hey, I want you to play this like gangster guy or this whatever. Like, do you just like, are you just like, yeah, sure, I'm, I'm game. Are you, are, does he have to sell you on it a little bit? And, and like, is there any doubt in your mind of like, oh man, I'm going to make a fool out of myself? What, what, do you, what do you go through mentally when the, he's like, yeah, you're going to be this, this tough guy? Yeah, I'm, it's really not too much of a, I just, what I've learned from, you touched on something in that question that I want to sort of go over a little bit because you talked about like, it seems like there's like, there's almost zero shame when it comes to how, you know, you cast against these, these norms that you'd have in, you know, in Hollywood productions. And I'm just going to say this for, for independent filmmakers, if you have that self-doubt and like, you almost got to be shameless. It's a weird thing to say because when you're not in the in the industry itself and, and you, you sort of leaned on, in on the fact that you're, you're going to be independent from the industry. So there's just a different route. What it comes down to is you, you just, you have to be, you have to be shameless. There's got to be a part mentally that you just, you got to get past it. You got to get past it. It might look, look bad. And believe me, I've looked back on some of my, you know, old, old projects that I did. The first project I did, I cringe, you know, I'll even show it to friends. Sometimes we'll laugh at it and stuff. Um, and it's, with that in mind, it, it, it's it, I, I definitely get that it's very tough to feel comfortable doing certain things. But when it comes down to it, you just got to get past the fact that if you're too focused on, can I do it? Can it be done? Does it look right? There's just, I, I, we, Dan and I have worked together for so long and we just know that if we don't try, it, we're never going to, we're never going to succeed. We're, we're, we're never going to, to get things done. So whenever Dan comes to me, hey, say, hey, you're going to be this, you're going to be that. I, I do have... Obviously, a, you know, a very important worldview to me. Uh, Dan's, Dan's Catholic and I, I'm a, I'm a uh, Christian. Um, so there are certain lines I will never cross that are, I'm just not comfortable with. But for the most part, when it, when it comes to any character I play, when, when Dan just pitches me it, I just take the approach of we got to make this work. We're going to do all we can. And then um, we just got to get we got to get stuff out there. We got to get we got to work on stuff. I can't be a good actor unless I just keep acting. You know, and it's the same thing with cinematography. It's the same thing with directing. It's the same thing with editing. You only get good by doing it over and over and over again. And you just got to get past that self-doubt and that shame that sometimes you have that, oh, this isn't going to be good. Of course, it's probably not going to be good. The amount of times that I, I said, okay, well, yeah, it might not be good, but it's going to be something. And I'm going to be able to see afterwards, I got to change or I got to do something different. Yeah, it's it gives you an opportunity to learn faster than somebody who's kind of a scaredy cat with it you know if, if you if you jump into these things you're going to learn lessons left and right you're going to be light years ahead of you know somebody who's who's just tentatively putting their toes in the water if you just dive in you know each time you're going to end up accomplishing more things in life but you're also going to end up learning a ton more lessons and when when you're starting out, that's the most important thing. It's like how much knowledge can you acquire? You know, the, the the clock is ticking. Let's acquire some knowledge. Let's get really good at the things that we want to do. And I think anybody watching you guys' stuff can see, you know, absolutely improvement, but also can see um, just confidence in general. I think that I think if I were to explain the feel of these Dan Lotts and Joel Dick collaborations to somebody who hasn't seen them before. I would say these are guys that are that are 
extremely confident in what they're doing to to a level that will meet you uh, halfway, you know, more than you could ever expect. And uh, I think I think that's an important aspect. So uh, a Dan Lotz film, uh, a Joel, what what does it, we know what a Dan Lotz film looks like? Will we ever know what a specifically a Joel Dick film looks like? Do you ever want to do something completely by yourself? That's a good question. Um, so for we have the obviously we have some, uh, ideas for twelve features coming up, uh, starting I think Dan was saying like around August, but don't quote me on that. It, it's, it's changed from June to July to August, so I, I don't know if it's going to officially start then. But um, we got this this idea to do twelve features in twelve months or produce them in twelve months. Uh, and for one of them, we were thinking that I would come up with the idea, I would write the script, and I would direct, and Dan would be the cinematographer. So if that does go move forward, and if it if it does end up working, you might uh, very well soon see w- what my style is. I, I, it's definitely going to be different. Uh, I will say that for sure. Um, it, it's weird because it's hard to, and this actually goes to back to the, even the last point of like just sort of having this this insecurity about your own ideas and your own projects. When I went to film school, and I I just really we just released a video on this on YouTube. One of the things that I think was pretty important was just getting past the fact that you're not good and just 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 throwing stuff at the wall and seeing what sticks and doing all that in film school, which not a lot of people do, and they don't. I don't even I don't even argue that everyone should do. Just that sort of failing in that environment where it's it's not like there's not this big outside world shaming you as sort of it's like okay, well I see what you did here, but I would have done this. And these, you know, a lot of these professors and teachers, they just they make it comfortable comfortable for you to just not care about how it ends up, but just caring about doing something. So, if I'm being, if I'm going to be honest with you, that's something that I've struggled with for a very long time. And I think one of the reasons why I haven't put as much, you know, videos out on YouTube for the channel, or the majority of the the projects that actually do end up getting done are most likely you know, come up by, they're, they're, they're made by Dan just because honestly, it's, it is harder for me to get past certain things. I'm, I overthink things, I overthink ideas. So I do hope that I'll be able to get one feature of the 12 to actually be done by me. And I don't even know, I'm, I'm obviously a little nervous about that, but it's, it, I would definitely say Dan's a little more aggressive with, you know, getting his ideas off the ground and, hey, let's get it done. And let's get it to this point, to this point. So I, I do hope to change that, but if I'm if I'm going to be honest with you, that's always been something I've struggled with is sort of just having that confidence uh, you're talking about. So when you're talking about the confidence between me and Dan, it's it's mostly Dan's confidence, and I'm trying to I'm just trying to ride the wave and sort of learn from him in that regard. So when you guys collaborate together, uh, what are the kind of things that you would disagree upon? Or, or do you always agree? Like, what's the nature, so to speak, of like a disagreement on set about maybe a shot or a scene or whatever? And uh, like, what are the kind of things that you might, you know, have to argue about if, if you even do argue? Yeah, there's been multiple things we've argued about. Uh, shots, um, long con, we argued about what happens to the main character. As a matter of fact, that was that was a really big argument that we had specifically for the long con because our main character obviously he's just sort of this scummy guy who sort of preys on anyone and everyone in his sight um and just sort of cons them out of everything and then 
you know, there was a very large argument about how what what happened to his character in the end, and it, it was so big that there was a phone call I'll never forget. Uh, I was I was visiting some, some family members, and uh, on the way home, I got a call from Dan, and it just at the end of the phone call. Uh, to make a long story short, was just it was so heated that I just said, Dan, we need to end the, end the call right now. You need to take a day off, think about our ideas, and come back and 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 just talk about it again because I think we need a little stew on the other other person's perspective, and then we need to figure this out. And this was just this was just writing the script. This we hadn't shot anything. It was just we knew we wanted to write a feature length script. We knew we wanted to shoot the feature, and it was just what happens to our main character at the end of the film. And it was a, a very very important aspect, basically about whether, you know, he lives or dies, basically. And obviously, you'll never know unless you watch the film. So, I'm not spoiling anything, Dan. Sorry. Um, <laughs> so, it, it was just something where we, we took a day off. We came back. And I, I think we actually, we just went, went out to eat. And then we both sort of came to uh, a compromise on the situation. And I think that's probably the, the most heated it's ever gotten. Um, but on set, I'll give you an on-set example there's just been many of these times where it was just a shot uh, that I didn't like. I said, Dan, I don't, this, I think we should cover from this side. And Dan's like, no, I think we should cover from this side. And I'm like, all right, Dan, this is, and then we'll, we've learned over, over time because this has happened many times that we'll just shoot it both ways. And then that sort of, and then, and then Dan will usually pick his, his, the shot that he proposed in editing. So that's usually how that goes. Well, I think there's a great lesson in there with, uh, you know, walking away from the conversation when it gets a little too heated, because really, at the end of the day, you guys are our friends. You guys are, are are really close to one another. And that that should, you know, be the most important thing there. How did you guys meet? And uh, tell me a little bit about how that friendship uh, began. Yeah, we, we both met in speech and debate class. We're, we're both uh, homeschoolers. So our, our, both of our parents didn't trust the public school system, and um, and we were both homeschoolers. And then there was these there was two things that you could do. You could go to these homeschool classes, where it's basically in the middle of the actual public school and the homeschool. So it was basically like, okay. Well, we we all don't trust the public school system together. Why don't we make these classes and then have like maybe some parents teach um, you know the students the specific subject and one of those. One of those classes was speech and debate. And Dan and I, our parents both picked, uh, we said, we, hey, we need to learn how to, how to sort of speak on our feet. And, and actually looking back, Dan and I were talking about how important that, that class was for film specifically, because that's where we learned interpretation, which was a certain type of speech you'd give where you would basically have a book and then you'd play a character and they'd sort of teach you how. To, it was basically theater. It's basically like a very miniature version of learning theater because you you have to learn these characters and these little character, you know, uh, these little things that they would do with their body. Like one of them would twitch their arms and one of them would twitch their, you know, their eyebrows or something. Or if, you know, as an old man, you'd be hunched over a little bit. So we, we got like a little bit of like a theater type class experience. And then on top of that, I met a friend and we just started making films and then Dan started making films. And then next thing you know, we were just, I just walked into this room one day and uh, Dan, Dan was showing off his, his short film that he just shot called Nobody Touches My Guns. And he's like, gosh, watch this, guys. And I was like, oh, that's cool. And then next thing you know, a bunch of guys from Speech and Debate were 
we were just we would get together and make films and then the rest is history so when you're making films together is it mostly like in friends houses are you are you going around town finding little locations to shoot at uh how did you go about you know finding spots to make your films at yeah, at the beginning, it started out as being um, just at Dan's parents' house, and we would just we would just go outside to the front and back of the house, and just like I said, we had our you know airsoft guns, and we would just go around and pretend to shoot each other, and that was that was about it. And then after a while, we would start to, to sort of branch out, go to different little parks around the air, his parents' area, and and then we figured out that his parents had the shop where they would put, they would put all their you know his his parents on a, a painting company and so they owned this shop where they put all their equipment and then there's like oh my gosh there's this shop and then we sort of had this like new it was like a, almost it was basically like a mini set where we could we could set up anything we could set up lights we could set up and in, in, in everything was contained it had this really big like door that could like a garage door that could be opened it looked really cool and then that like sparked our interest we were really excited to do that and then there was a time where we got really comfortable with going and, and just finding different locations. Like one of them was uh, like a high school football field that we found. And then another one was this, this park with all these like shipment containers. It looked like actually like a Call of Duty map. It had all these like shipment containers and then there was a bunch of mounds and it was actually really, really cool. Um, and it was just, yeah, we would just go out, like you said, to find different locations near the end. And then it was just, it was just fun. It, we would have loads of Mountain Dew and, <laughs> So that's all I would say about that, I guess. So with the, uh, as far as influences go, um, what was the kind of stuff you were watching and uh, what what do you watch now? What what would you say are the kind of films or, or filmmakers that, uh, you know, have have had an impact on, on how your films look or, or what your approach is to filmmaking? I would say when I was growing up, um, my, my parents really loved TCM. So I, I got a, most of the things that I would, I would pick up on and, and watch when I was was young was are there's all these classic films. So, and I have my mom to think about that. One of my favorite films is Starlight like Seventeen, uh, directed by Billy Wilder. But as I grew up, and I, and I also loved, I think my, one of my favorite shows was Scooby Doo. I think a lot of a lot of people will, will uh, relate to that. And but as I grew up, and and basically from Dan, from from my experience with Dan, he sort of showed me. He, <laughs> I would not, I would, if, if it wasn't for Dan, I, I think I would still only know about like classic movies and Scooby-Doo at this point, if I'm being honest. But, uh, but because, because Dan was, was there and he would, he would suggest all these movies, we'd watch a lot of movies together. I got into movies a little more than, than like the, the kids shows and, and then John Carpenter. There was, a, I think, when was this? Probably when I was about 16, something about nine years ago. We, Dan and I watched our first, he, he said, we got to watch Stay Live. We got to watch Stay Live by, by John Carpenter. We got to, and then that, that blew me away. And then we watched um, The Thing. And then that, and then that was, man, that really, that, that threw me for a loop. The Thing was, I'd say, and that's probably up there in my top five films. But uh, yeah, and then, you know, you sort of get, to, you get used to some of these other filmmakers, man, a, a lot of which I'm even forgetting their names, but. Uh, in terms of cinematography, I don't even after film school. Like people say that you go to film school and then you just watch these films and you can never watch them the same again. And I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I, I, I never, I don't know. I never subscribed to that. After I went to film school, I was like, well, "What do you mean?" 
it's like it was something where like you see the man behind the curtain and then your your perspective is forever changed and that never really happened for me uh and now because you know danny boy is going crazy about the criterion collection now i have some experience of some of these uh criterion movies um that are just a little more focused on just the art of 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 filmmaking but in terms of, of what i watch the most now it's i was talking to dan about this i actually it's mostly tv shows it's it's funny it was this funny sort of thing that i was i was saying I was like that's interesting i'm a filmmaker but i mostly watch tv shows nowadays i don't know if that's just the most of the things that are out now are, are a lot of these all i see are these marvel films and these marvel spinoffs and it's like i don't know uh, that's taking a toll on my on my um consumption of, of films and i'm actually focused i'm actually more excited about like independent films from other creators like you know you joel rob hagan's um you know doing productions uh, rc films all these other independent filmmakers are actually getting me more excited than the, the, the latest uh marvel release or you know, some of these movies that you got to pay, what, $30 on top of having a subscription. I was like, screw that. I'm not going to watch those anymore. Yeah, I hear you there. Uh, and also, I, as well, I was a bit of a TCM kid growing up and a little bit of a Scooby-Doo kid growing up. You know, I, I always hear that um, TCM, if, if you really want to know what, you know, your favorite filmmakers are, are watching, like maybe your Paul Thomas Anderson's or whatever, he he's gone on record and say and saying that he just has TCM on his TV as background noise twenty four seven. You know his TV is just only on TCM. If you go into Paul Thomas Anderson's house, it's just going to be a TV playing TCM all day long. And uh, so if you're watching something on on TCM some night, you might be watching it alongside uh, you know some of your favorite directors out there. They might be tuned to the same station in that exact moment. Scooby-Doo as well. I, I feel like Scooby-Doo gets a weird rap because there's so much Scooby-Doo. You know, there's <laughs> there's there's a million different uh, Scooby-Doo movies. There's a million different series and, and whatnot. But I do think that the, in the original Scooby-Doo, and also because I was a kid at that time, a pup named Scooby-Doo I was into as well. But um, the very original, you know, first Scooby-Doo series... There is kind of an interesting rhythm there. There's an interesting visual style there that I don't think it gets enough credit for that really kind of informed me as a kid. It just, there's something about that show that just, it stimulates you a little bit creatively, I feel, in that it's just kind of this template. And when when you get into a rhythm with anything, it doesn't even matter if it's that good. It's almost like... Um, you just need something as a kid to lock into that you you know is familiar. And then because it's so familiar, you can start focusing on other aspects as well. So like if I know how every single Scooby-Doo plot is going to go and I know that there's going to be like the Scooby snack moment and I know that there's going to be like the little musical number moment or whatever, then I can start looking around at like the frame in another way. I can start looking around at like, oh, that's really cool that, you know, they cut to like a painted frame for like a moment to like show like the monster. Like I used to always love that they would do that where like, you know, they would cut to like seeing the monster and then it would just be like a picture, like a well-drawn picture of the monster. And then they would cut back to like, oh, now the monster's like a cell again. And it's like more simply drawn, but I just, little things like I would just get distracted by. And then that probably informed me understanding how things are constructed and 
that, that that's my take on the Scooby-Doo, I would say. Yeah, I, I definitely think Scooby-Doo. I mean, I was, just as you were talking about it, I was actually thinking about like as a genre, what Scooby-Doo is. And it's it's very similar to what Dan and I are doing in terms of this like crime underneath the surface type genre. I mean, it's like teenagers, which a lot of the uh, detractors of our, of our of our works will always say that, you know, oh man, this guy doesn't look intimidating. This guy doesn't look like a, this guy looks like a teenager, you know, standing there and he's trying to be imposing and all this. And I mean, think about Scooby-Doo. It was what, four, te- you know, four teenagers and a dog. Like, okay. And then they're going out and like solving all these, like these crazy mysteries of like this under the surface, crazy, craziness going on. There's this zombie, this witch with witchcraft, you know, and it's like, oh my goodness. And this random swamp, you know, it's, it's like, so it's funny to me that I even just thinking about it because I'm, I'm, I'm making these very similar genre films now. Um, however many years later, uh, and I definitely agree that the, the, the old seasons are, are this Scooby-Doo, where are you is definitely, um, the top of the peak. Also like, um, SpongeBob or those first three seasons sort of kill it. And then, you know, things go down. I did not watch pup named Scooby-Doo though. So I, I, I don't, uh, that's a good one. It had its own kind of humor that it, it added to, uh, Scooby-Doo. It, it kind of had like jokes that were like specific to that series and that it would just kind of it it just felt like its own thing i would feel like it didn't feel like it was trying to like be something else that's what i liked about that so i would i would recommend uh for the listeners at home uh the first scooby-doo series scooby-doo where are you and then also pup named scooby-doo is pretty good as well also i will say you know chloe is going to be very mad at me if i don't mention this but one of our favorite stand-up bits of all time is by a guy named Stuart lee and he has a bit in one of his specials. I forget which one it is, but you can find the the stand-up bit on YouTube where he talks about being like a new father. And, you know, he's he's already been doing stand-up for about like a decade at this point, if not more. But because he's a new father, he just, all his kid wants to watch is, you know, Scooby-Doo, the same exact Scooby-Doo movie on repeat all all day, every day. And so his his references to draw from as stand up are limited to just that Scooby Doo movie over and over and over again. So the stand up bit is about him trying to talk about like global things or things that are bigger than you know just him that are going on in the world. But his only reference point is that one Scooby Doo movie. So it's just this really long bit where he's just constantly constantly relating things back to this one Scooby Doo movie, and it's just it's it's one of the best stand up bits I've ever seen in my life. So I would say anybody listening, especially you, Joel, you know, dig that up on YouTube. Stuart Lee, uh, I, f- I forget what it'll be, but it, if you just type in Stuart Lee Scooby Doo, it'll probably come up in some capacity. But that's that's one of my favorite things for sure. I'm definitely gonna look that up. All right, so. You know, you, you you do the cinematography, you do the acting. Is there any other thing that you would want to get like super good at as well related to film? Like, is, is there a thing where like, hey, I want to I want to try my hand at just like editing movies or like start to finish or like any other aspect of production that you run it, you want to get really, really into? Is Is there something there that you'd like to dive into? Yeah, I one of the things I've just out of necessity have sort of gotten into is, is sound. And, 
it, it did purely start with just necessity. Hey, Joel, you got a free hand. Can you pick up the boom pole? Can you, can, yeah, just, just stand there and just be quiet and just be, yeah. You know, it started off as that. Um, but after doing chlorine and the long con, that was one of the things that I sort of focused on. And uh, not a lot of people know that, uh, actually a lot of people do, but some people might not know that the long con, we basically dubbed over the whole, we just had the actors come in and re-record, re-ADR all of their lines. And most of, I'd say, what is it, 70 to 80% of the, the film is all dubbed over. And I was, I had to handle basically placing all the clips and doing all the, the, the EQ um, and the reverb for all of the voices. And just from just from doing all that, I do have, one, a lot more of appreciation for people that sit there and have to focus on that all day because it, it is very difficult. But I, I, behind it, though, there is an excitement to, to learn how to, to, to level up in terms of the sound game because it's one of those things that I think a lot, it sort of slides under the radar. It's not as exciting or seemingly excite as exciting as cinematography or directing or editing but it's just one of those things that if you don't if, if the sound is bad it's just it not only is it extremely noticeable but it, it it can really take your film down a lot further than bad directing or like bad cinematography can i found oh absolutely it's one of those things where like you know, you can get past the visuals, like if they're, if it's, if those aren't really maybe up to snuff, if the sound is all right, but the reverse, it's just not going to happen. You can have the most gorgeous looking movie. And if it, if it's like, if it physically is uncomfortable to listen to, you just can't really get into it. It's, it, sound will kind of make it, make or break your movie in that sense. It's super important. Yeah. And it's, um, thankfully, it, it's something, that I've been I've been trying to get better at, and unfortunately, though, it is one of the last things that Dan and I got good at. Because if you look some, at some of our short films that are on our YouTube channel earlier in the channel, it, there's a lot of sound issues. And uh, thankfully, it's one of those things that it took some time, but we at this point we we finally gotten uh, used to a little bit. And this actually, I was thinking about the, uh, this 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 interview today, and I actually had a question for you, Cody. I'll I'll go after you here, but I had a question for you. What is the your least favorite thing, least favorite part of producing a, a short film or feature film or whatever? What's the like? You do everything else, and then there's this one part of the process that you're like, I can't. I just I, it just takes you so long to do. For me, it's always uh, post production sound. It, it it I just hate it because there's with like when you're doing like the shots and you're like figuring out like how they go into each other like that can be kind of annoying too because you're like watching like the same moment over and over and over again and it's just like it becomes like white noise to you at a certain point like just the visuals you just gotta you forget how to like emotionally even like react to what you're doing it's like you're you feel like kind of a robot doing it but that times a hundred is when i'm working on sound and i'm, I'm polishing that up and I too have gotten a little bit better over the years. You know, it takes time to get really good at sound, but it's it's super valuable. Um, but it's just it's so boring, and you know, it just takes forever. And the more the more you can do as far as getting good sound on set, the better because it just makes it a lot easier in post. 
I had to do a ton of ADR for uh, Ramekin. That was entirely ADR. Um, and that was just, it's just so painful and so difficult to do. So yeah, I would say recording ADR, if I have to do it, I try and now I try and avoid it like the plague, even though I did it for stylistic purposes with Ramekin. It was just something I was going for. I just wanted to create something that felt like a, a live action cartoon in a sense, something that felt like very artificial yet had this like weird hyper real quality to it. So I, I did that for that. And it's like, man, I just, I, I don't want to go down that route again. So every, every film I've done since then pretty much has been, you know, just recorded on set sound. But yeah, that's, that would be my answer is just either, either recording ADRs is a bitch or, doing the actual post-production sound and polishing up everything in Adobe Audition or whatever I'm using. That's just, it, it just takes forever. And it's just, I, I don't really get much enjoyment out of it. Yeah, no, I, I would definitely uh, agree with you. It's, it's tough. Um, and out of, like I said, because of necessity, I've sort of been forced to get decent at it. I'm not even going to say good at it because I don't think I am. Um, but f- for me, the thing I cannot, st- editing, I just get on the editing program, get in Premiere and I drop all the stuff in. And I just, I have like, when I say negative motivation, I mean like true, I have negative motivation to get any, any editing done. It is the, 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 the amount of coddling my, 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 I have to coddle my brain is just to get to uh, any progress on an editing uh, platform. It's just ridiculous. Um, and I think that's, it's funny that, that Dan and I ended up, coming together and working on films as we did because that's Dan's thing. He, I mean, like he just loves editing. Like he is the maximum joy in his heart when he is sitting down looking at the dailies that we've just shot for like a feature film or a short film. There is nothing, there's, there's no time that he does not, there's no other time that he has a, a bigger smile on his face other than when he's behind a, behind a computer and he's, and he's just, he's manipulating everything. He, he starts to see his vision sort of come, um, come to reality. Um, but man, for me, editing is just, I'll, I'll say this, whenever I get into an editing, I get everything right. I get all the, cause like putting all the, the files in and, and getting all the structure of like the bins inside the editing platform, I find fine. Like it's, it's great. It's, it's easy. But as soon as I got to start laying things in and actually editing, I, I almost, I look around to see if I need to clean anything. That's how boring it is for me. I actually think, should I clean my room? Should I, does the kitchen need to be cleaned today? Do I need to like wash some dishes or something? I mean, most people hate like cleaning, but I'd rather do that than edit. So it's it, just thinking about that uh, was, I was thinking, man, that's, it's interesting that Dan and I are, are working together because he loves the editing and that's just the thing that I cannot stand. Yeah, well, it's good you have somebody that loves it. Um, I'm definitely more on the dance side of things. I I do enjoy editing, but there are those moments where I'll just be looking at what I got and I'll be like, man, there's just nothing here and I'm a failure and it's over. And it's like then like maybe 10 minutes later, if I just play around with it just for a little bit, I'm like, oh, my God, I'm a genius. You know, look at (laughs) look at what I did here. This is this is the best movie I've ever done. And it's just like. I feel like in editing, it it's you know how people say like football is a game of inches. Like I feel like editing is a game of frames. You know, it's a, a little like a frame here or there can like throw off, you know, a uh, a scene or whatever. It, I like the precision of that, but um, 
It's definitely time consuming. I feel like the for me the fastest aspect of making a film is the the shooting might take maybe like a long time, but like it goes by so quickly. So I feel like when I'm shooting something, it's like fast forward. And when I'm editing something, you know, it's like normal speed. And then when I have to do like post-production sound, it's like slow motion. Like, it's just like, I feel every second of the process <laughs> so much. Does that make any sense? That makes complete sense. <laughs> that makes complete sense. All right. So if you've heard this show before, you you will know that uh, we, we wrap things up here with uh, stupid questions. Are you ready to be asked some stupid questions? Let's let's do it. Let's do the stupid questions. All right. Uh, first stupid question. Approximately how many dick jokes have been made at your expense uh, throughout your entire lifetime? So many that you just like, you don't even like react. Like I actually physically don't react to the jokes anymore. So I, there's no, there's no counter. There's no like, you know, I don't know, put in a factorial on your calculator. I don't know. Um, that was a math joke. If anyone didn't get it. Um, yeah, just so many that I don't even physically react anymore. Like it just, I just, some people block out like traumatic like experiences and it's like a really negative thing. I just like, I block it out because like of anything, if you're, if you experience anything a billion times, you just, you just cease to experience it anymore. So it's like most of the time people will just like, they'll look at me and I'll be like, what? What are you looking at me for? Like, I just don't, I like it just, it goes past a filter. Like, it's like a high pass filter. Just like, just boom, just passes over. So you have a filter for dick jokes, basically. I mean, it's just something where like, I'll, I'll hear it, but it just doesn't like, it never gets to like the part of my brain that like registers that it actually happened. I, I, I don't know. So, so it's like, you just get, you just get used to it. It's like something where it just, yeah. Understood. Understood. So your name is your name is Joel Dick. Yes. And uh your your middle initial is M, right? Mm-hmm. So Joel M Dick. Yep. Uh does the M stand for my? No. <laughs> nope. So that, that was my little attempt at a dick joke there. That was the best I could muster. Nice. Anybody ever made that one? Never. That was that was I uh, see, that's a fresh one. That's a yeah. It's a brand new one for you. Yeah, you probably were pretty happy. Like I feel like in the last couple of years, people have become obsessed with this animal called a dick dick, which is it's spelled like your name, D I K D I K. Yeah, it's a it's a little like antelope type creature, very adorable. Yes. I feel like that kind of took the heat off. You know, references to penises. You know, now people can be like, "Hey, it's like that cute little animal." You know. Yeah, but it never. It never really, really, really goes there. Honestly, it never ends, does it? It doesn't. But here's the thing: I've actually, when you have a last name like that, you, you tend to, you know, it just you start thinking about certain aspects of it. Honestly, I, I see it to be a very, it's like a shield. I, I, I call it a shield because you know instantly how someone views you based on like if that's if that's a hangup for them, you know. I feel like it allows. I feel like it allows people to like. It allows me to know like where someone's coming from or where someone where someone's at mentally when I'm meeting them like most pe- the people that like that's like that big of a, a deal to them like I I already know what kind of personality they are so it's like it's like this weird shield that if people can get past like in terms of relationships I, I it's like it's like a very, it's like a screen it's like a screen that if only the people that get through are the ones that I like actually interact with 
And I actually see it as an extreme positive. And I've, not that I've thought about it a lot or anything. I'm about to like write a dissertation on this, <laughs> but I, I, I see it as a blessing. Right on. So you, so your dick is a blessing. Oh, 100%. All right. So next stupid question. I don't, I don't even know where to put this question because it might be a stupid question. I, I don't even know what it is because, you know, it, it is what it is. But I was talking to Dan Lotz yesterday. I was like, you know, I'm going to be doing an episode with Joel Dick. Is there any like special question I should ask him? And he was like, oh, I got one for you. So I'm I'm putting it in the stupid questions section just in case it's a stupid question, but maybe it's not. Who knows? All right. So Dan, his question was that he, he wants me to ask you is he wants to know what happened with the broken window. Oh, man, the broken window story. Yeah, let's bring it out. Um, yeah. So the, the long con we had, how, how much did we budget? I think we budgeted $1,000. And it ended up being about three, three thousand, and five hundred of that had to go to replacing a window um, because we were using one of Dan's family members' uh, house, and um, that we were very fortunate to use. And she's very, uh, Michaela. She's very. We we shouted her out at the end of the film. Um, she's very, she's very nice and kind, and, and allowed her to use her house. Um, but her house is a very. It's like an older style home. It's it's. She keeps it very well and um so we we said okay we want to do this shot on the roof because there's this little overhang roof for um like the entrance to the house like right above the door so we're like okay we're gonna get the shot it's gonna look cool they're gonna be up on the roof it's gonna look visually interesting and dan and i went down and we basically asked her hey can we use the roof she says yeah sure you can access it from the window up on this room but she basically said something at the very end and I, I just like, I was so focused on just, you know, could we use it? Yes, good. Like you need to use this little rod, you just use this rod to keep the window open so that it doesn't just slam shut. And of course, that's the moment, that's the, like the words I didn't hear. So we opened the door and it was me and, and um, the, the hands-on man, Edward Shilka. And so I got out to the roof with the camera and the, and the camera gear and I was getting myself situated and Edward was coming in or I'm sorry, I should say out toward the roof. And then basically he came through, but he didn't keep his hand on the window as he was. And so when he when he got through, he sort of took his hand off the window and the, the window came crashing down and it broke. So I guess he wants me to go over the story. Basically, it's because I completely forgot that you there was this metal bar to, to wedge the window open that I, I did not tell anyone. I just I just went through and didn't even think about it. And uh, if I had only told uh, our hands-on man, Edward, uh, that uh, the bar and what it was used for, uh, we would have saved uh, about $500 uh, on uh, the, the production. So I guess Dan wanted, I guess Dan wanted me to say that it was my fault, which it was. So there you go, Dan, uh, there's my uh, confession. So that's a that's an entire ramekin movie, by the way. That five hundred dollars. It, it's funny to think that you can make a movie for the, the cost of a window, but it, it is possible in this world. Well, it's exciting, in my opinion. It's what it's what makes uh, independent film possible for many of us who um, see these these huge movies. Watch Scooby Doo as a kid. Watch Star Wars as a kid, and say, "Man, I want to do something like that. That would be so cool." And the fact that we can do it for five hundred bucks is like. Yeah, it's like it's like I'd say it's like winning the lottery. You know, it's like oh man, I could do it. Wow. Oh yeah, 
And it's like, if it feels weird or something, it feels like you don't have enough money, just put like a, a ton of zeros after that decimal point, you know? Just, you know, <laughs> just keep adding zeros after that decimal point. You'll feel like you're, you're a super rich dude, you know? It's like, yeah, it's $500 that I'm making a movie for, but if I just keep sticking zeros at the end of it, nobody's going to know the difference, you know? Oh, that's, that's actually very true. I didn't even think about that. No, that's, that's probably a good thing. Yeah, you could put as... You can put it to keep the math jokes uh, coming. You can put as many zeros as you want after that decimal <laughs> point. That's 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 your decimal point, by God. You know that's that's that belongs to you. You can do whatever you want with it, really. Yeah, yeah. That's funny you t- you even bring that up too, because I was also thinking about this the other day. Because the film being cheap is is very recent, but what's really funny is that Dan and I. We are also both of us are also extremely cheap, so it's all it's almost like we were like fated to, to to make films together because not only am I just you know very I guess someone would say frugal right um, most people would call it cheap I call it frugal but the fact that Dan and I both are that way is definitely uh, has definitely benefited us in terms of in terms of making films and. Um, you know, just hearing that the ramen can, you know, cost it the same amount. I, you know, is, is that the same for you? Do you, do you find yourself to be pretty, you know, pretty frugal with the way and, uh, and very intentional with the way you use your money? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, uh, you know, most of the things that I collect in life or, or get drawn into like are just super cheap. Like, uh, you know, I, I started maybe a year ago or two years ago, just like, if I'm in a store and there's like some Hot Wheels or like Matchbox, uh, you know, if I'm if I'm in Target or Walmart or you know somewhere like that, you know, I'll pick up like oh like this one's kind of cool looking, and I'll just I'll just pick out whatever car like looks kind of interesting, and like I'm paying like a dollar a car, so it's like fine. Or like movies that I collect, like I'll go to like you know Goodwill or Salvation or just one of those places, and I'll just get like DVDs for like a dollar. Sometimes they're like unopened or whatever. I just in in life if I'm collecting something it's like super duper cheap. You know, I'm never going to be one of those persons that's people that's just like uh collecting like expensive cars or anything. I'm always going to be more of like a Hot Wheels matchbox type of person. I just there's there's a particular thrill over having something that's very inexpensive that you actually care about. And uh, I think it's good training for film in general is you know, you're caring about these films to a great extent but at the end of the day you're not spending that much and it almost feels more special to you because of that i would say yeah i mean the real currency is your 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 work a lot of people don't really see filmmaking as a skill anymore like it's it's like this it's like this thing that you just do and everyone does it on youtube and everyone's producing their own little videos now that people there's this weird feeling that it's just like Oh, you're doing, oh, you're just doing a video. That's cool. Like that's, that's cute. But when you, when you think about filmmaking as a skill and, and knowing how to manipulate a frame to promote a specific emotion, the amount of work you're, you're putting in, like people say, wow, you don't really care about your film. You only, you only put in $500. I guarantee you the hundreds and possible thousands of hours that you've put into into your film, uh, into your films you've done, Cody, could be valued over over six. I mean, easily over six figures into the millions. Oh yeah. And when you think when you think about that, 
that that your your work is is actually has value and not only does it have value but let's be honest it has lots of especially nowadays all these companies are coming out looking for for social media youtube type content because social media is where it's at so knowing knowing how to do that film work is not only valuable but it's even becoming more and more valuable and so when when you say yeah i only spent $500 but when it comes to the, if you start thinking about the amount of time and the amount of focus that you're putting on these projects, you're spending, mil- I mean, you're spending millions. And I feel like that really, I think people got to start looking at it, at it that way because as, especially as an independent filmmaker, your time, your time is what you control. You know, you're, a lot of the time your money is, is controlled by a lot of different things. Um, and, and, and a lot of those things can be that, this, you know, the jobs you work, whatever, but your time you control 100% of. And, and I think it's time for, for a lot of these independent filmmakers to start realizing it's valuable. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, it, I'm priceless. My films you know, may cost like 500 bucks, but I'm priceless and the finished film is priceless. You, know, you can't, any, any art in this world that's a finished work of art is, is priceless in some capacity. You know, it's, it's, there's no, you know, when people like complain about the art world, they're like, oh, why is this, why is this painting like $2 million? And why is this one like $50 at like one of those little art shows, like in a small town or whatever, you know, it's, it's all arbitrary, man. It's, it's just, there's no, it, it, it really is just cost. It, the cost is what somebody would pay for it on some level, but on a, on a deeper, more fundamental level, I think we realized that you know, every piece of art is just as valuable as, as every other because it creates this tapestry of a time period in as far as like, you know, making films in this in this era that we are in. You know, every single one is just as valuable as, as the next because it tells the story of now, you know? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, it's, a, it, it's a very cool um, time capsule that is just, it just, it just excites me, especially I'm thinking about like, the, the next movement of, of filmmakers who are, are working to be independent. And it just gets me excited. If you don't mind, I know we're supposed to be doing the stupid questions. Um, but I, I do have another question. Like, what do you think, what do you think of this new independent movement that's coming out? Say whatever you want, um, you know, truly independent uh, movement, folk filmmakers. I mean, some of these, some of these um, terms come out, but what do you, where do you see this, this movement going? Do you think we're on the verge of something and, and you know, obviously, you really—I don't think you can really talk about it other than outside of the even Hollywood context. You really sort of have to hinge it there. But what do you, where do you see it going over the next couple of years? Well, this is definitely the, the deepest stupid question segment I've ever had, which I love because it's just a total <laughs> swerve, and everybody who is like expecting it to wind down just got you know punked a little bit, which I I love. I love that aspect. But to answer your question, because it's a great question. I think about this this a lot. This is this is probably the thing I think about the most beyond um, my own stuff and and what I'm going to do next is what as I think about what other people are going to do next and where this is all going. And for a long time, prior to me making films, but also you know in, into my first couple films, I would always think about like, all right, you know, we've seen the films made by the generation raised on. Star Wars, so to speak. So we've seen the films by the people that saw those first three Star Wars films, four, five, and six. We've seen those movies. 
And I've always been a little bit sympathetic to the prequels. So I was always I was always talking about like what what are the movies gonna be like that are by the kids that were raised on one, two, and three, episodes one, two, and three, you know, that had that as part of their childhood. What's that gonna be like? And that was just always kind of like a thought experiment I would think of as a you know, a fan of films and filmmaking, whatever, because you know, kids kids love those movies. You know, those those are Star Wars for a lot of kids. And those kids are now grown up now and are, you know, younger than me and and maybe same age as you or whatever. But the point is that like we are now seeing what those films are like by somebody raised on, let's say, the Star Wars prequels. And what I think they're taking away from those movies is they're taking true independence away because George Lucas, those are his independent babies. You know, episode one, two, and three, that's George Lucas, and that's everything George Lucas wants to do, and that's him making those big movies independently, and I think that rubs off on a generation, and I think, you know, maybe they don't want to make a Star Wars, you know, maybe they don't want to make something huge in that capacity, but they, I think they took away that independent spirit independent spirit from it and they they ran with it they went off and felt like they could make their own stuff and the idea of making something with hollywood and in conjunction with hollywood and having people breathing down your neck that like don't understand what you're trying to do and then also having to sell toys and also having to do any number of other things that aspect wasn't ingrained into a generation and so you know we're seeing this freedom that's unimpeded by uh, the the studio system and Hollywood and whatever. So, you know, it was it what started as this thought experiment of like, man, what would movies look like if if kids were raised on episode one, two, and three? I as I've grown up, I've seen that, and it's become a very real and very serious thing to think about, which is, you know, the the true independence, the the folk filmmaking, the the no budget filmmaking, the DIY filmmaking, whatever you want to call it, it's born out of seeing true independence on that large scale. Um, what what George Lucas was able to do, and I'm I'm saying this, you know, I'm not saying that every single person likes the Star Wars prequels or grew up on them specifically. But it is this milestone event that happened where Star Wars was his baby for those three movies completely, 110%. That was just him going full-blown with it. And I think that has a ripple effect in the universe, so to speak, where like that's a huge boulder dropping in the water and you know just causing ripples all the way to very small filmmaking, which honestly it's, is, I think, what he would have wanted above all else to begin with anyway like he at his heart is an experimental small filmmaker and that's that's where he started and when people ask him so what are you going to do now that you sold star wars to disney and whatnot he, he said hey i'm going to make little movies that nobody's going to see i'm just going to do little film experiments and nobody will probably ever see them and that's him at his core and i think that's kind of what he created with uh doing something that big and that truly independent that that's what i would say so i would say where i see this going is that just like the 900 done by tony hawk on his skateboard and just like you know the four minute mile or whatever 
you know, me making a film in 10 hours or me making a film for $0 and everybody is, is hitting these milestones, uh, so to speak, with what they're doing. They're, they're making movies for cheaper. They're making movies better. They're making movies in, in these really short amount of times. They're just, it's just world record after world record after world record. And I think the next generation, it's just going to be so old hat to think of like, oh yeah, of course you can make a movie for 500 bucks. You know, of course you can make a movie for nothing. Of course you can make a movie in 10 hours. Of course you can do any number of these things. And when you have all that, of course, then you have an entire movement and movements of a movement that are just all based on these things that we just take for granted, which we should take for granted because that's what push, pushes the art form forward. You know, once it's once something is not impressive, that's when it's like really fertile ground for an entire generation beyond that to grow from. You know, it's like it's kind of like we're the animals that have to like die and become the dirt so that like the next generation of like flowers can like bloom or whatever. It's like we have to become so old hat that we're just kind of like dirt on the, in the ground. And then all these beautiful things are going to come from that, if that makes any sense. But that's my long-winded uh, explanation and answer. But that's where I see things going. And if I had a button, I could just have like a round of applause. that could just last for like a minute. I would push it right now. Oh, thank you. That was really good. That was really good. Because I, I was talking about this with Dan um, about a week ago, and we were sort of just ruminating on it. I didn't even think I didn't even think about a lot of the things we were talking about, but it's true. And I've... I've I had a couple comments on, on YouTube videos. Just it really is exciting to see what this movement might you know create. Um, and Dan was saying something very similar. We haven't seen the crazy good film from this movement. I mean, let's just be honest. It's probably not here yet, but that's exciting. We, you're exactly right. What what might be we might be used as fertilizer for for the future for the future filmmakers. There's going to, I don't know what movie it's going to be. I don't know who's going to make it, but there's going to be one film where people say that, that, that wasn't a big studio film. That wasn't, that wasn't a Hollywood. That, that was some random person that just decided he wanted to make a film. And I, you know, like I said, we could be the fertilizer. It could be a couple of generations past us. Dan basically said it. I thought I said it pretty well. We ha it's not out yet. The, the, the masterpiece of independent film isn't here yet but the, the excitement is we might be a part of that process and i think i think that's really cool to me is that we're going to be a part of that process obviously i i love the pro the, the projects that, that all the what independent film is now has created i love the product i love seeing them like i said they're probably the films that i watch the most right now but something about what will be is really is really is really exciting uh, to me. And you also talked about the, the the people that have grown up on the first three um, Star Wars films, and that's that's me. That's me. My one of my favorites is uh, to, to much chagrin of of a lot of Star Star Wars watchers is you know the Phantom Menace. I really I really love the Phantom Menace. Me too. I, people who say Jar Jar Binks is a bad character, I laugh at. You know, when you were saying that, it was funny because I was just thinking about it. I wonder if that is why I was, as you know, sort of went to the independent way. I, I really don't know. I can't say that for sure. But I will tell you that it's it's hard. It's hard for me to see nowadays what people say. You know, you have two people, you have two kinds of people who see film, and one, the one side will say 
man, there's like barely where are where are all these films? Like, there's barely any films out. There's no films to go see in the theater. There's you know, we could see what Mulan and, and or we could see one or two, you know, films in theaters. Where are all the films? And then and then there's the other on the other side. There's 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 the wow. There's way too many films out. There's way too many. There's way too many people doing films now. And I just feel like both of those are indicative of sort of this legacy mindset, which is first of all the reason why people will even begin to say like there's only like one or two films what's going on is because that's that's where hollywood sees its future less projects but them being so big and and they 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 focus on their target audience is so large i mean we're talking about you know, they're going to make the, the gdp of of 15% of the countries in the world <laughs> I mean, we're talking about that they have to they, they have a they have a system set up that they have to make the entire GDP of like fifteen percent of the world in order to be successful. Um and but at the same token, why are there a bunch of people making all these small films? Like, like there's so there's so much. They're not worth any I, I I just for me, independence is the excitement of that. Why can't you be excited about there being a billion films out there? That, that, pe- that individual people are making, that individual people are finding their audiences for. I feel like the way Hollywood's going, it's we need that one big one to do a crazy amount of, uh, of box office success. But I feel like what makes independent um, community so, so beneficial is that who benefits from loads of films being made every year? Everyone. They're, everyone benefits when there's more feature films being made. Because the more feature films, the more art there is out there, that, that, that helps everyone. And so that's what excites me about independent filmmaking is that when it comes down to it, the independent filmmakers, we're, we, there is a feature film for every single human. On the, in my, it's my belief that, that if, if there's this goal of every human having like a, a, a movie curtailed to what they like, who's really making the gains? Who's who's getting to that point? What what, what part of what, what type of filmmaker is getting to that point? It's the independent filmmakers. Independent filmmakers are allowing literally everyone on the planet to like to have a like a, a, a film for them, and so it excites me that that's the possibility. I do think that in the future, just like Dan said, we're going to see the independent masterpiece um, that doesn't have any, any any you know is not focused on. Hey, we got. Uh, insert very famous celebrity we got uh, to be in our film um, they won't need that and I, I'm man I'm, I'm excited I'm hoping it's you know some a project from someone I know but it, it's exciting that there's there's probably a film out there that's gonna like change my world because of how good it is and, and how curtailed it is to what I like um, and just just the fact that we can the whole I just feel like the whole world benefits when you have so many different viewpoints and their artistic expressions being able to be seen anywhere. I don't know. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. I think, um, you know, when people think that they're like, oh, well, everybody's making something, so why should I? It's just like, no, that that's the exact reason why you should is because, you know, everybody's breathing, you know, it's you're not going to wake up and be like, well, why should I breathe too? Everybody's breathing. It's like, no, you have to breathe. You have to, if you're an artist, you have to make stuff, you know? 
This is this is your breathing. As an artist making art, that's your breathing. So you just have to do it and you have to make your films and whatever. And what what's been really encouraging for me is seeing the success that Joel Haber has had with Pretend That You Love Me in particular, because I, I think it's up to maybe 375,000 views on YouTube. And that's a pretty niche film. That's that's it's it's a great film. I love it, but it's it's a bit more experimental than I would ever have thought would uh, connect with so many people. So I do think the audiences are out there, and I do think probably the most successful film right now is is that one of the people we know because it's reached the most amount of people. If you look on Letterboxd, it's got you know, more ratings than anybody else. They're all very high. People are really moved by that movie. And I've been encouraged by its success because I've sort of realized, oh, it's not that my stuff is like so niche that like only thousands of people have seen, you know, a movie of mine or whatever. It's that, you know, once you get past that, like kind of uncanny valley, as far as like reaching a wider audience, you realize that like, you know, it's 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 really like you have an audience of hundreds of thousands or millions for any particular one film of yours. It's just that you don't have the exposure such that they even know that you exist. So, you know, while I am kind of like you waiting for that big masterpiece that's going to be like the obvious like, oh, that's the thing that's associated with the movement. I also am encouraged by the fact that maybe it's already been made and audiences are just going to really super connect with it once they realize it exists. So like they might take, uh, you know, some Dan Lotz movie that he's already made after he does like the 12, you know, feature films in the year and stuff. They might go back to like one of his first films and be like, no, that's the one. And it's like, really? I made like 15, you know, but like, you know, it could be something that's already been made because it, sometimes it takes a little while for a film to find its audience. You know, we get so used to instant kind of audiences for things that we forget that like even something like Big Lebowski, which is such old hat now, you know, that didn't really take off immediately. That It took a couple years for that to become this like huge cult hit. I would say the same thing for John Carpenter's The Thing or, or They Live. You know, they were appreciated at the time, but man, couple years later a decade later you know these are these are bona fide classics right up there if not more so than halloween so it could it could already exist it could be sitting on somebody's hard drive right now that we haven't watched yet it 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 could be our next project your next project whatever but it's going to happen there's going to be some huge undeniable movie that will open up people to the movement like never before and right now Obviously, you know, Joel Haver is the Nirvana, is the is the Kurt Cobain of it all, where like we're the other Seattle bands and people are exploring us through the fact that he's the most successful Seattle band. You know, it kind of like trickles down from that. But, you know, there will be some other Nirvana, you know, there there will be some other and I'm using that term as like the gateway band, the uh the band by which you then explore other stuff, like kind of like the White Stripes and then exploring other Detroit bands or, you know, Weezer and then exploring other, you know, kind of like post-grunge kind of emo-y bands or whatever. The point being that, like, there are these certain uh, artists, certain time periods where, like, you, you get your way in and then after that you just realize, oh my God, there's so much other awesome stuff. So 
there will be that like every I feel like every couple of years there's going to be some new thing that's that where like people people find a way in and then they're really excited to have found what they find. Yeah, it's exciting to think about, but it's also I think it puts a level of we might be we might be the you, you don't know which channel is going to be the next one that's to be the gateway for someone else. So we also have like this res- weird responsibility uh, on top of um, it being exciting that there's going to be, you know, that Joel Haver is, uh, has been the gateway for a lot of viewers to get excited about this industry or, you know, the independent film uh, movement. But who knows? We still have a responsibility like you and me and Dan have a responsibility to if someone if someone if we're the if we're the gate if we're the uh the conduit to someone else be, getting excited about an independent film we better we better be on our, our <laughs> we better be good too you know yeah absolutely i'm i mean that's always important to remember you're you're somebody's favorite of you know all of them you know that's it it's like everybody has a favorite like power ranger or something it's like we're all on the same team but somebody's gonna like the red ranger more than the blue ranger somebody's gonna like the blue ranger more than the red ranger somebody's gonna have some way in and cody clark is is somebody's favorite of the group and and dan lots is somebody's favorite of the of the group and you know they we're a star to them we're we're the uh the big star to them and you know, there's definitely, you know, with, with that power comes responsibility as far as, you know, just make the best movies you can and get your channel in order and uh, be a good person to uh, other people around you and, and all that, you know, satisfy that aspect of it. Mm. Yeah, definitely, definitely. All right, man. Well, that was a, a long and, and very interesting conversation. I hope people enjoy it. I really enjoyed talking to you today. Um, and, uh, hopefully we'll do it again sometime. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. Uh, it's always exciting to talk to other filmmakers. All right. Take care, man. All right, dude. Thank you all for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, $2 per month, kill the You know how to support us. We hope that you do. See you soon. <laughs>